Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? You're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. In today's episode, we continue our recommendation series with part two of our philosophy comics recommendations. In our previous episode, we heard from Albert and Zach. And in this episode, we'll hear from me and also from Alexander Shanus. And now, on with the show. Cool. Cool. So, um, I guess if, you, if you're done talking about that uh, comic, Zach, uh, we can move on. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. All right, cool, man. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go next then. Uh, so my, my choice is something that I think on the surface, you would not really expect it to be a philosophical uh, comic at all. My choice is an issue uh, of a superhero comic from the early 90s, Doom Patrol, number 34. Uh, this issue was has a cover date of... Uh, July 1990 and this was written by the uh, it was written by Grant Morrison penciled by Richard Case inked by John Nyberg colored by Danny Vazo and lettered by the incomparable John Workman so Grant Morrison as you guys know is a big name writer and Doom Patrol even though this was yeah I guess it's 30 years old now even though it was it's 30 years old now, uh, Doom Patrol is still considered one of his greatest works, and rightly so. Uh, actually, there's a Doom Patrol TV show on uh, the DC, uh, what you call it, the DC, DC Universe, Universe streaming app. Yeah. That show was heavily influenced by the Grant Morrison run in Doom Patrol. Okay, so you, you've seen it, Shanus? Yeah, I've, it's already in the second season. I've seen all the episodes so far. Okay. Yeah, I've actually never, I don't have the DC app, so, or the, the service, so I've, I've never actually watched it, but I've read the Grant Morrison run, and it's, it's definitely one of my top five favorite Grant Morrison comics. I think it's completely fantastic. He, he wrote probably, what, like 40 or 50 issues or so, so it, it's, it's substantial, but I just wanted to uh, highlight this one specific issue uh, issue 34, still relatively early in his run. Um, and if you want to look it up, I think um, for our listeners, you can find it on Comixology or just go to a, your comic store and see if they have it in the back issue bin or look for the trade paperback that has this issue. Well, you said he did about 50 issues and 30, issue number 34 is early in his run? Yeah, because he didn't start with number one. Oh, I see. Uh, that's right. <laughs> like, took over. Yes. Yeah. 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 So he did not uh, begin this specific volume of Doom Patrol with number one. I think his first issue was like number 19 or maybe even like number 20 or something like that. Um, so the Doom Patrol, I'll just give a, a brief uh, synopsis of the concept of the Doom Patrol for our listeners in case you're not familiar. If you haven't seen the TV show, um, I, I don't imagine most people really know what the Doom Patrol are. Uh, but the Doom Patrol is a superhero team that's basically about, by the time Grant Morrison takes over, it's it's a team of bizarre misfits. Uh, originally, they were created in the 1960s as a team of outcasts and misfits um, 
who banded together like, under yeah. the under the leadership of a guy in a wheelchair. Very similar to the <laughs> concept of the X Men, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's always kind of that uh, comparison between them. Uh, I, I actually think that the Doom Patrol, the first appearance of the Doom Patrol might have uh, beat the first appearance of the X-Men by a couple of months. But, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Stanley and Jack Kirby copied Arnold Drake or anything like that. It's just a coincidence that they had these kind of similarities to them. Um, the Doom Patrol always... In the Silver Age, they they were pretty much fighting uh, like weird I, weird threats, I guess. Um, but by the time Grant Morrison comes over, does a real postmodernist take on the team, they just get even more and more bizarre. So it's not just a team of of outcasts and misfits, but it's a it's a team of outcasts and misfits who just engage in in bizarre uh, activities and, and deal with bizarre activities. Uh, for the purpose of this recommendation, all you really need to know is that one of the primary characters of the Doom Patrol, um, he's, I think he's been with them in pretty much every incarnation of the team ever since, but uh, the character is Robot Man. Very simple concept. He's exactly what his name describes. He is a robotic character <laughs> his, his origin he's a story, robot with the brain of a man <laughs> yeah his origin story is that th there was a man who was a, a race car driver he was involved in a flaming crash uh where the only thing that they could save was his brain and niles calder the founder the of the doom patrol the guy who's in the the wheelchair he's the scientist he saved uh, Cliff Steele is the robot man's name. He saved Cliff Steele's brain, transplanted it into a robot body, and ever since he's been Robot Man. So that that's his deal, <laughs> <laughs> right? It, it's it's what very. Is that, what, is, what is robot? What's his deal, Drew? <laughs> what is robot man's body made of? Robot. <laughs> I was going to say steel. <laughs> he was carved from a bigger robot. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's the thing with this issue, with issue 34. The, the story is called The Soul of a New Machine. And this is a comic that is about Rene Descartes' uh, philosophy about dualism. I think uh, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. But the, the whole idea is behind dualism, um, and again, you know, I remind you, I'm not a philosophy scholar or anything. Um, all of the philosophy I learned was basically whatever I might have remembered from school, uh, <laughs> things that I read off the back of the cereal box, and this comic. So <laughs> that's all I know about Rene Descartes. Joe, this idea, Joe cartoons. <laughs> yeah, and cartoons. <laughs> So this idea behind dualism is is the idea that there's a there are two distinct substances, uh, your mind and your body. And the question is, does the body rule the mind or does the mind rule the body? And there's the the whole notion of uh, I don't know if it's really existential, but it, it's just this idea that there are these two uh, two different substances. And 
it's it's it raises questions about how how does something that is immaterial which is the mind how how can something that is immaterial and distinct from matter uh how can it actually influence things that uh are uh tangible like how how can how can the your mind which is intangible and distinct from matter still actually influence or interact with or affect matter so there there's that i guess these kind of competing uh concepts there so this issue of doom patrol begins by asking uh this question does the body rule the mind or does the mind rule the body and the reason why is because at the end of the previous issue robot man was involved in a in a fight and his body got damaged so uh Niles Calder has to repair the body but in order for him to do that safely he had to remove Cliff's brain and put it in one of those uh you know like a a nutrient tank um while he works on the body and during this time uh while he's working on it he uh he he takes a break you know he leaves the room and walks away but Cliff Steele his brain is still uh conscious he can still think and you know what Descartes said I think therefore I am. <laughs> Funnily enough, the the robot body actually wakes up as well. And now you have the robot body interacting with the brain and they're they're talking to each other. Um and it, it's a, it's a very bizarre experience because Cliff, I'm just going to call the brain Cliff <laughs> to make it easier. Um but Cliff he's just taken aback and he's you know, he he's he's just a brain right now in a nutrient tank. he he can't see or anything but he's hooked up to some speakers so he can and a microphone so he can hear and he can talk uh but he and his body have a conversation and the body is just like i've developed a consciousness and uh you know i'm worried that if they put you back inside me uh, i might lose my independence <laughs> you know so it's <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's kind of silly it, it, and it is meant to be funny i think so they they have this little conversation and the body is like you know i don't i don't like the idea of you being put back in me and he uses his robot body to drill a hole inside the nutrient tank so all the fluids start to slowly leak <laughs> <laughs> and then the the other major part of the story is two of the doom patrol's greatest long-time enemies uh going back so far as the silver age uh make an appearance and these these guys are from the brotherhood of evil they're called the brain <laughs> he's basically also a disembodied brain inside a, a nutrient tank that's shaped like a skull and his his longtime partner monsieur mala who is a talking gorilla <laughs> a super a intelligent talking, talking gorilla, gorilla. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's funny because they're they're making their way to the doom patrol's headquarters but i guess the doom patrol you know they they live in like some kind of a like a mount, like off in the mountains or something and uh to make their way there monsieur monsieur mala he he's just dressed up like how he normally does he he's a gorilla who wears like army pants a tank top uh a french beret he's got bandoliers and a gigantic assault rifle on his back and he's <laughs> he's and he's got the brain inside a what do you call it a, a baby carriage uh <laughs> and and he's just pushing along this baby carriage on 
on the streets in a suburb. So he's like passing by normal people who are freaking out at the sight of this, this, this gorilla with a gun who's talking. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's pretty funny. It's, it's, it's a silly concept, but, but uh, even then uh, Morrison uses this scene to, to talk a little bit about philosophy of, about how uh, there's this additional distinction about beasts because Descartes argued that beasts are automata, basically, they're, that beasts don't really, they're not like people because people have, have, uh, have minds, they can think and reason, um, whereas beasts or animals are driven by instinct and mindless lusts. So, um, you know, there's, they're, they're not, they're not human or they can't be regarded the same way that humans can be thought of. Um, but the brain tells uh, Mala that, you know, they, well, first of all, he says that Descartes was nothing but a miserable git who never had a good time in his entire life. <laughs> and, he, and then you get a little recap about uh, Mala's origins and how he used to be just a normal gorilla until one day uh, the brain, I don't, I think the brain was always just a brain in a tank, but he had henchmen who uh, basically captured this gorilla so he could do some experiments and made him a super genius. So, so Mala is a, is a genius who, who knows how to read books and, and, you know, learn and think and talk for himself. And then at that point, after he became a, a genius, he and the brain formed the backbone of the Brotherhood of Evil, who ended up fighting the Doom Patrol and Teen Titans over and over, over the years. And now it's just the two of them left and they're going to have their revenge on the Doom Patrol. So they make their way over to the Doom Patrol headquarters. And this is when, while Cliff and his body are still having this conversation um, about, about uh, you know, who gets to control what and, and what it means that there's, I guess, a distinction between the two of them. So the, uh, the brain and Mala enter, they break into the, the headquarters and, they, and then the robot body ends up fighting uh, Mala. So you get robot versus gorilla action in this comic. And then, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, it's funny. And then uh, Cliff, his brain's still just in that tank that's leaking nutrient fluid. And the funny thing is like, I always enjoyed this part of the comic, but, but there's a moment where Mala, like the, when he first starts fighting the robot body, he's just holding the brain under his armpit like a football, you know, just tucking him in. And then at, at some point he's like, ah, oh, master, I see that you too crave action. Do not fear. I will show you action as you have never seen before. Brain versus brain. And he just throws, he throws the brain at the nutrient tank with Cliff's brain in it. And they just crash into each other. And then the next few panels, you just see these two brain tanks. They're just sitting next to each other and they're both disoriented and they're like, what's, what is happening? <laughs> they're like, what is happening? And then the brain says, robot man, is that your voice? That's you, isn't it? My hated enemy, at last, we are face to face in open combat. <laughs> but they're just these two brains and tanks that aren't that can't do anything. <laughs> so so anyway, Mala 
ends up beating up the robot body and his whole plan is to beat up the body and then um, he's gonna put the brain inside uh, the robot man body so that the brain will finally have his own body and he finally does that um, and after he does that, the brain wakes up in Robot Man's body and he's like, wow, I'm, I, I, I can feel, uh, it's, it's amazing to, to have a body. And then um, at this point, it gets pretty funny because Mala takes off his, his hat and he's just like clutching it like a, I don't know, it just gives a sense that he's, he's getting nervous about something. And he's like, you, you look very handsome, master. <laughs> and then they just look at each other and smile, and then they turn away because they're embarrassed. And then, and then they start talking about something else, and then the brain in Robot Man's body says, let's, let's stop pretending, Mala. All these years, we've worked together, lived together. I can't lie to you any longer. I love you, Mala. <laughs> and, then, and then Mala, he turns and looks at him and he's got tears coming out of his eyes and he's like, you don't know how long I've waited to hear those words. And the brain says, we mustn't be ashamed of these feelings. Kiss me, Mala. <laughs> and then they end up kissing and then the robot man body explodes. <laughs> because... It, the, the robot man body wouldn't accept anybody's brain placed within him. <laughs> so they explode. And then at this point, uh, Cliff, his, oh yeah, the, the reason why he's able to survive is because uh, Monsieur, Monsieur Mala was chewing a piece of gum. And during all these activities, he, he put his gum out of his mouth so he could kiss the robot man body. And he stuck his gum at the hole where uh, the nutrient fluids were leaking out. So that's what that's what kept uh, Cliff Steele's brain alive. And at this point, he's he's still there. Um, he he can't see, but he's like, "What is happening? Can someone tell me what's going on?" But then uh, nobody answers him. So he's all he can do is just uh, talk to himself. And then the story ends by repeating uh, the question that was asked at the beginning of the comic: Does the body rule the mind? Or does the mind rule the body? But it also adds a caption that says, I don't know. And that's the end of the comic. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's something that I really enjoyed. It's, it's so simple. It's straightforward. It, it, it's a fun comic to read, even if you don't think about, uh, if, even if you don't want to think about dualism or Rene Descartes. But uh, it was the first comic it wasn't the first comic I thought of when I was thinking about uh, the philosophy comic, but it was the one that I thought would be the easiest to, to talk about and enjoy. Um, and I, I would definitely recommend this to people, even if you haven't uh, read any other of the Grant Morrison issues in the run. It, it's a story that still makes sense if you just pick it up cold and and just dive straight into it. Um, I mean, you, you get all the information you need to, to know about uh, Rene Descartes and, and Plato um, within the story. You even get enough background on Robot Man and uh, Mala and the brain so that you're not really left wondering who are these characters, but you actually do get these little uh, summaries of, of their origins within the story itself. But it also, 
leaves you with um, the questions that it posed, you know, it, it gives you something to, to think about uh, and it presents it in a way that's still entertaining and, and humorous, I guess even satirical. Um, so it, I think that's what makes it easy to, to consume. It, it makes it easy to digest and understand or, or think about these ideas, um, even if you're not initially attracted to the idea of, of a dualism or philosophy in general. Um, it, it makes it uh, appealing to, to consume. Mm. It's uh, interesting because Grant Morrison, he's, he's a pretty out there dude. Like I, I can honestly say that most of his comics tend to, he'll, he'll touch on concepts that I as just a, a very average person <laughs> <laughs> have to have a hard time wrapping my head around sometimes. Um, yeah. It reminds me of a story where Kevin Smith was talking about Doom Patrol and how um, when he was, when he was, I want to say either in college or high school, he, he read Doom Patrol and it just, it moved him so much that it, uh, it, it was like one of the early comics that got him back into comics mm -hmm. uh, you know because because he had he had gone away from it from his childhood and he it wasn't a thing that uh he was aware of could be more sophisticated than it was yeah so he was telling a story about how he he read the doom patrol and he bought like i forget which issue and he bought like several copies and basically what he wanted to do was he wanted one to read one to keep and he had one copy that he and you're going to hate this, Drew, but he cut the, the comic up Oof. so that he could uh, make art for it that he would be posting on his walls, you know, like like clip art or something like that. Okay, right? well, well that's, that's still better than cutting it up just to throw it away. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a purpose behind it. Yeah, exactly. So, so he does this, and his mom, like, sees the images, and she's like, concerned because she thinks he's becoming a satanist or something <laughs> and and the way he tells it he he's like yelling at his mom and he's just like going you don't understand mother it's dadaism <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a there's a whole story where the doom patrol fights something called the the brotherhood of dada yeah <laughs> which is another philosophy right yeah so, like Grant Morrison was clearly uh, dipping his toe in like ideas that were far bigger than than we're accustomed to. <laughs> I almost yeah. want to draw like an analogy that um, Grant Morrison is to comic books the way Franz Kafka is to um, science fiction. Office work. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh. Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that? Like, I don't know if you've read much of Kafka's works, but like with Grant Morrison's, like you can read it and you can make sense of it on a surface level, but at the same time you feel kind of like confused or unsure about certain things. You know there's something deeper they're trying to address. So you have to kind of read it a second time, even, and then you might have a better grasp of what's going on. But like he's just touching on ideas, like the things he's trying to communicate just feel so... Um, so bizarre, so mixed up, 
in whatever you're used to thinking about in the world that it it just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't you can't read it and be like oh i i get this and you can't read it yeah. like times like oh i get it now it's like every time yeah. you read it like you feel like get it more but then you also feel like maybe maybe it's you feel like even more confused about things but you know that what you read makes sense in the words you've read and the yeah. ideas stuff to plunder and explore and, and it's kind of strange yeah i i'd actually agree with that sentiment because um you know, I, I, I'd say, like, my first exposure to Doom Patrol, and I, I haven't read the whole series, but I remember just reading, like, the first trade at the library when I was in high school. And it was the sort of thing where I read it, and I knew that I didn't understand all of it, but I understood it enough to know that these were ideas that were... that were... that, that sort of blew my mind, because I was, like... I was kind of surprised at how... I had never thought of those things or how those specific ideas had never been applied to storytelling or, mm-hmm. or at least as far as I've read it. So, so, you know, for anyone who's trying to get into comics, like I, it's, it's, it's a bit of a challenge, but I think it's a fun challenge. But I, I think it also like highlights Morrison's scholarship in anything he does. Like he, Clearly, must have read enough Doom Patrol to know the background history of like the villains and the heroes. To be like, yeah, okay, he's big on comics. Huge. What comics can guy. I do with this? And he's like, all right, there's Mansur Masala and and the Brain, yeah. and was it Mansur Mala? Or yeah, Mansur Mala. And he's just saying like, why would these two actually work together? Like, what what would why would they keep on persisting in this? And what what's their motivation ultimately? And because I think, I think that was like the the good period of time when when a lot of at least a good chunk of creators were asking the question why and what are they supposed to be doing like rather than just like okay here's a villain here's a hero they'll just fight or they'll pontificate about an opposing philosophy and then they'll still fight and i think grant morrison's asking the question like what is this character's purpose what is what is this character trying to achieve and so it's like yeah so there's a brain and there's a there's an intelligent gorilla so i think it's like um, he just asked himself a set of questions that rationally followed one through the other. He says, all right, I'll just explore this idea. And it, it, in a, in a way, but it almost feels like untethered because you look at this, it's like, who would think of this, right? And yeah. it reminds me of that episode of Pinky and the Brain called Pinky's POV. And you finally get to see like the train of thought that Pinky has to the point where like when Brain always asks him, um, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? And like, Pinky's response is completely unrelated to that question. And I think it's, I think that's like the way Grant Morrison and certain creators work. It's just, they just, they follow a natural, actual, like the starting point was a natural question, a natural thread, and then unravel it. But that natural thread goes to more abstract realms, but it's, but each step still is like, is, is a step you could follow if you're aware of the step they took. And I feel like these are the kinds of stories that we get out of this is that you look back and sure, it's a bizarre thing, but like, then you see, but I could almost see why he would do this. Like, mm-hmm. it's a brain versus a brain. It's a gorilla versus a robot body. A robot yeah. has sentience, like a gorilla has sentience. But the sentience to both of them is sort of imbued upon them. It's almost artificial. Like, they weren't born with that, like, intelligence or that functionality. Right. At the same time, these two brains were really, I mean, even though the brain may have been a brain to begin with, this idea that it must have come from, a, from some body form. Yeah. It was a brain. Mm-hmm. So you have like these opposites 
at the same time, like those that, that you said, this duality and like working in several different ways. And it and it's just secured. This actually makes as bizarre as it is, as much as it doesn't make sense, it makes sense because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think this story too, I think not only does he introduce the reader to these ideas of dualism, uh, but I think I mean I I I would probably still need to think a little bit more on it in order to give a, a better explanation. But I kind of think that this is also a, a refutation of the idea of uh, Cardian dualism. Like, I think there's something in this story that, that kind of indicates that there are, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know if they're like, I don't know if you want to Forces. call them logical fallacies, but but there are there are uh, yeah I guess that's the only word I can come up with like there are fallacies to that philosophy because if if the mind and the body are two truly uh, distinct uh, and separate substances, then how come it is that when uh, like for example like how come if you get if you get punched in the head hard enough, you can lose your consciousness, right? It's like, if, if they're two separate um, concepts, then one, then, then one who gets hit in the head real hard uh, and you get knocked out, um, that, that shouldn't um, affect the mind, but somehow it does. You know, I mean, even drawing that that further, it's like, why is it that when the body fails, the, the mind will also just expire? Mm -hmm. And why is it when the mind goes away, the body no longer functions? Yeah, yeah, all very logical points. And I'm not really sure. I I don't know how Descartes would um, address questions like that. Um, but it, it, it does kind of feel like this comic um, leans a little bit more towards the... the the side that says dualism uh, isn't, you know, that, that, like there are fallacies to dualism. Like even like with the idea of, of what Descartes said about animals, um, like Morrison does make a point here in the story about how, how the brain actually proved Descartes wrong by granting a mindless beast a mind you know so it, it, it's it's done in a way that isn't uh heavy-handed like like morrison and, and case aren't slapping you in the face telling you hey descartes was wrong but it's, it's just more of like a, a sly funny kind of light-hearted way of of uh going over that philosophy maybe i'd, I'd be hard pressed to take it as a refutation just because this is a fictitious world and having a, a fictitious gorilla attaining um, intelligence isn't exactly stating that this is something that would really happen. Right, right. But the, the, it's, I think it's more about the intent um, from Why the Why did he choose to write it that way? Yeah, like the fact yeah. that he chose to, to write it that way, I think it, it to me it that, illustrates. Yeah, it kind of seems like the tone leans towards um, the author or the writer of the work um you know it kind of shows you like what he actually thinks in a way yeah i mean i, I don't actually yeah. know if that's what morrison thinks for all i know he could be a staunch dualist but yeah <laughs> I, I almost would say like i think the, the last that what he added like is like i don't know i think is this whole thing is like 
I don't, I don't, I mean, I have to read it again, but I, I would argue that I don't think he's even taking a stance. I think he just wants to explore the idea of dualism through this almost ridiculous story to say like, look, maybe this whole question itself is a moot point. Like, what, what do we, what, what do we actually accomplish by exploring this besides just, yeah, something that we tell all philosophy not, not majors. <laughs> yeah, what do we actually accomplish with this? <laughs> and that that could be it too. That that like I feel like that in its in and of itself could be a, a valid refutation of yeah. of the concept. Just this idea that this this doesn't really, you know, you can spend a lot of time navel gazing, pondering these things, but in the end, um, it, what does it really matter? You know, what, what would you rather spend your time wondering if uh, the body rules the mind or the mind rules the body? Or would you rather watch brain on brain action? Would you rather watch a <laughs> fight a robot, you know? <laughs> Two brains kind of enter, funny. one brain leaves. Yeah. <laughs> what were what you going to say that? Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say it's, it's, it's funny because of I guess the uh, the absurdity with which the question is posed or with which the question is, question is handled. I guess you just have all these antics going on throughout the story. Um, kind of going back to that concept of dualism, though, um, it, it is it is kind of a fascinating question to ask. Um, ironically, it is a little bit relevant to some things that are happening today. There's definitely scientists and like you know neurobiologists and stuff who are like trying to determine um basically how does that work like is that true is it not true like objectively trying to figure it out i mean those are people obviously much more intelligent than we are <laughs> they're they're actually working on that um they might be they, more intelligent than we are but we know more about batman than they do <laughs> and, and more about doom patrol for sure <laughs> but yeah it's even even asking the question though you know does the mind control the body or does the body control the mind uh there's sort of a presupposition there that i think um consciousness or the seat of intellect is somehow located in either the body or the the brain or the body or the mind or whatever and uh we don't we don't really know that for sure either. Um, it's just, to me, it's always just been a fascinating question because we don't really, it's, it is very hard to nail that down. Kind of going back to what you guys were saying about, you know, getting punched in the face and stuff like that. And also there's like psychosomatic illnesses where you can, you know, be mentally in such a bad place that you cause yourself to get sick physically. So as far as we know, there's at least sort of a reciprocal relationship between the two but we just even now even with all the technology that we have we we don't really know how that works there's lots of people asking questions but we don't really have answers that are really really satisfactory as far as that's concerned yeah there's a, there's a lot of research that's going on into the idea of neuroscience and um it's never going to be exact because at the best all i can do is is just measure like the flow of certain things um synaptic response Kind of seeing where the brain quote unquote, lights up due to certain um, stimulus stimuli um like there's also a sort of a debate but it seems like people are convinced that um you don't get to choose or control your emotions or how you feel you just feel and then you can process afterward um although it's not clear to me how that's actually been 
experimentally shown. Um, I've tried reading up on it, but I, I just, it seems like it's just something they just kind of accept through sociological studies or something, or what they argue through neuroscience some way, but I, I it's not my field, but there's that idea. But if we talk about the mind controlling the body, we, you know, we have a momentary like thought of like, I'm gonna move my, fit, my hands or legs here and there. So this idea of like functional control, but we still wouldn't be able to discuss the idea like, like where do ideas come from? Like, what does it mean? What does it mean to think or or contemplate something? Where does that come from? Is that is that even part of the mind? Is that part of the body? Is that some other realm through which our mind some way has access to or comes into our mind? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a ton of questions like that, and even even creativity, right? Like, right. How does that take place? Like, you you will yourself to do something. You're trying to solve a creative problem. Hey, I want to, I don't know build something or I want to draw a picture or paint a picture or something. So there's, there's something that happens, but we kind of don't know. It's like right. we, we will that to happen and it just yeah. poof happens. We do it all the time. It's common, but we have no idea how that works. I mean, we, we say it's built off of experience. Like if you're learning anything, you will learn the basic tools, but at the end of the day, like the, what guarantee do you have the tools you've learned will lead you to finding that missing piece that you're looking for? Like, we we understand this is what happens eventually. This is how we progress in research and development in the fields of math, science, and so forth. But nobody knows how or why a person can just come up with the idea at at a, a certain moment in time of saying, "Oh, now I get it. I've I've explored this and this, and this must be the thing that must be it." When it may even for them be like, "Yeah, I try these things, and I want to argue this is the most sensible thing to, to do." But the truth is. I just, I just wanted to try this. It was just something I wanted to explore and it worked out. Where did that idea come from? I think they could try to convince you where it came from, but even they probably wouldn't know. Just popped in their mind, you know? Um, but the other thing I wanted to say was um, it's, it is just a funny idea of like, what does it mean? Like, for example, I, I think there's a question like, could you separate the brain? Let's suppose you could take the brain out of somebody, so to speak, and connect it to a device that ensured that the appropriate amount of oxygen got passed through, that you could quote unquote stimulate blood flow to ensure nutrients get passed around. Because at the end of the day, the, the brain still operates on capillaries and blood vessels existing there that through where nutrients get passed through, that which can only function if there's oxygen going through there as well. So those are all rather bodily functions, right? Our breathing apparatus, our, the way the body you know, passes around the nutrients that we consume. Those are bodily things that allow the brain to work so the brain can then move the body around and do these things. It reminds me of this, um, I think, I don't remember how long ago they did this experiment, but I think someone was able to put nodes into someone's uh i guess brain and they were able to use their mind to control a mouse cursor on a computer screen which i mean i i i don't know like i i i, I don't think i'm at a place right now where i could <laughs> break down necessarily how that connects to the uh, the idea that 
to the overall concept of the discussion, but it's in there somewhere. You guys figure it out. <laughs> I'm 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 Google searching that just because like I find that a little hard to believe. No, it's it's actually a thing. So so what they did was Thank they. You, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> there's also there's also experiments too with like controlling robot arms and stuff um so what they did was they sort of um read the and i'm really really oversimplifying this but they read the electrical impulses uh yeah. on the brain yeah exactly or, yeah um so it's basically the motor cortex you know when you think about moving an arm or moving a leg or moving your hand or whatever it causes certain uh, neuron networks in that motor cortex to fire. Um, so this initial individual, where they actually put the electrodes into the brain, like invasively, they were reading those signals off the motor cortex, and they had those interpreted through this like mouse cursor thing. And with a lot of practice and a ton of like <laughs> a, a lot of time invested, the person was able to learn how to yeah use the mouse cursor. Um, there is a less invasive version of a similar experiment where they used something um, that does kind of the same thing. It, it reads those signals from the motor cortex, but this time outside of the skull, you know, without having to drill holes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like the first couple of guys that had to do that experiment finding out about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, like, there's a way to do this with <laughs> That'd be the worst. And so, yeah, they you used... You mean I didn't have to lose my eyesight and my right eye? <laughs> <laughs> and so they used monkeys uh, for, for the robot arm. Um, there's also experiments where they're uh, using electrodes that they implant into mice to sort of uh, erase or put in memories. And then there's also experiments that they run with little... Um, uh, little worms, you know, the little microscopic ones, I forget what they're called. Uh, you, you chop them in half and then they grow a, a new worm, basically. Um, but they can uh, implant memories and erase memories in them as well. So they're kind of experimenting with like, you know. I think I heard about that one with worms. I, I hadn't heard the ones about the rats. That's interesting. Yeah, um, they can yeah. actually like almost remote control the rat from the electrode being placed in its brain. That's impressive. pretty freaky. Yeah, I'd like to see links particles. I'd like to read up on that stuff. What's the that? natural. He said he wants to read the articles. He he want to read up on that stuff. Nice. Okay, I'll I'll see if I can hunt him down for you, Shannon, and uh, post him later on. Yeah, because apparently this is the one thing which I apparently I suck at with Google. Like I can I can find everything else, but I can't find these. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if you were to extrapolate on that idea, we we could end up in the maybe distant future with some real life version of mind control, Drew. How do you like that? <laughs> I don't like it. Mind don't control! Like it. <laughs> well, I mean, they'd have to put um, some connector into your brain to access it. Yeah, but it still would. Well, anyways. <laughs> I thought maybe, though, maybe they can just inject you with nanites. Maybe. Or it'd be like a Wi-Fi oh. control thing. Oh man! Five G. You would. That would be both of our most hated comic tropes. <laughs> Nanites and mind control. And then we could also have a world where people are purposely giving people amnesia. Oh man! 
think that's my biggest pet peeve. We gave him amnesia and replaced his memories with nanites (laughs) and mind-controlled him to rob the bank. (laughs) Hey, no, just uh, ghost in the shell. Just kill kill all the birds with one stone. Just ghost hack them. Oh, man. Okay, so that was my recommendation, Doom Patrol number 34. So all y'all should check it out. Uh, Good choice. Finally, we got Shanus and his recommendation. What do you have for us, sir? Um, so I have for us um, Moon Chattel by um, James DeMattes um, with art by John Muth. Uh, and it seems like all of you have been kind of just picking a partial excerpt of some run or storyline. So I guess I'll just talk about page 256. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There was something about that. Um, okay. <laughs> just killed me a little. <laughs> I don't know why. It just did it. All right. So Moonshadow is a, a bit of a... Um, a bit of a tome. It, there's a lot going on in it, and I would I wouldn't try to stick to it um, from the realm of philosophy, at least the philosophies that it addresses or tries to communicate about the characters. Um, that being said, I want to say that in no way, shape, or form do I feel like James Demattis is preaching or saying that there's a particular philosophy one should adopt, but more so that he explores different philosophies that characters can take on to kind of contrast and perhaps present foils for certain characters. So Moonshadow is the name of the, the main, he called protagonist. Um, and he's actually the one, he's writing to the voice of Moonshadow when he's older, reflecting um, essentially an autobiography. This is his life. And there's essentially three, I would say three, maybe four main characters, although one is just embedded in this world. Obviously, there's Moonshadow. There's also a character called Ira, who is just a, a Sasquatch-type creature that merely has, for all intents and purposes, when he's drawn, one hole that seems to serve like his mouth. You never quite see his, never really see his eyes. And he's cantankerous, rude, foul-mouthed, and a horn dog. He literally represents the embodiment of just um, desire and action without thought. All, all he wants is self-satisfaction. He wants things his way now and, and, and even five minutes before, before now. Uh, the other character we encounter kind of, I guess, a third of the way through is um, Jobadiah Lynxious, although he has a son. So the, we'll just call him the Lynxuses because there's also a, a daughter in the picture that we'll get to. And it chronicles just his how his mother came to give birth to him and why he was named Moonshadow. And in this whole world, there, there are these creatures called Geodoses that are, I guess, just capricious solar-like creatures that pop in on a whim, do whatever they want, cause mayhem, bring an order, do something completely unrelated. Um, and so they beam up Moonshadow's mother, whose um, birth name is Sheila Faye Birnbaum. She's 
Jewish. And then her later on gets carried away in the, um, the hippie movement and calls her name Sun, and then renames her Sunflower. So she gets kidnapped by this Jill Dose thing and um, they get married and apparently somehow they, they, they fornicate and pops out Moonshadow. And the story kind of picks up where he's just turned 15. He spent all his life kind of as even being only around his mother. So he's kind of had to like, he just went, he would hide away in the library and just read stories to kind of escape, um, which is a comment in and of itself. And he lives in this place called the zoo. It's the collection of all beings that this particular geodose or other geodoses have grabbed from around the universe. <laughs> And there's a, there's a slight remark saying that everybody, all the other species of creatures and beings regard Earth or humans as the lowest form of creation. We're not told why, but it's just like this, this kind of remark of like, you know, as, as proud as we are, it's like this idea of like, we're not alone in this universe and we may certainly be the, the lowest end of creation for all we understand. Um, What we learn along the way is through Iris' philosophy of that all you need to do in life is eat, shit, and fornicate. <laughs> that, that's him. That's his life. That's, that's all life is about. It's just, I just want to do things in the simplest way possible. I want self-satisfaction. And it's embodied by those three basic actions that, that drive him through the entirety of the story. Um, and of course, he goes through like, his own kind of transformation, but in, in and of itself, it's not really the kind of transformation we would think or imagine sort of. Um, so we see things from his perspective, because like Moonshadow, we, we get the sense that he, he delivers Iris' character in a very honest way. This is who Iris is, this is what he wants, this is what he does. Moonshadow, on the other hand, is a very like, um, I'm trying to find the right words. I don't want to say carefree, but like he himself does not feel that things need to be bleak, even in the face of bleakness. He's ever an optimist. He, he truly loves and cares and is always trying to find a way to connect with those around him, particularly with Ira. Like he truly does love Ira. Ira is his only residual father figure, aside from the fact that Geodos just simply participated in his creation. And Ira is obviously a terrible father figure in every regard we'd imagine, yet Moonshadow loves him and, and regards him this way. There's, and that shows up in, in, several, in several moments where um, Moonshadow really does everything he can to help Ira in, in those situations. On the other hand, you also have the Link Shadows, at least two of them, the males, who, at least until the very end, are like the most... Um, corrupt of people ever they will abuse use misuse uh, manipulate control people money planets things it's ultimately like he just wants power and control even when he feigns that he's not the one in control it's like the most devious and scrupulous kind of character ever and his philosophy is if there's something that you can have then it'll be mine because things are meant to be owned and controlled and I need to be the one doing that. Um, and you, you kind of follow Moonshadow's journey through this in which very early on he discovers this idea of death 
in, in two different phases. And it's like back to back. Let's play his mother dies while trying to help um, a stranded alien creature give birth. To which the thing that she give, that this creature gives birth to itself is upon coming out, what does it want? Food. And it chomps right into his mother. So there's this, this idea of like this, this adjusting this philosophy of like, you know, you could say like, do the ends just for the means? Like, yes, in principle, her push to help this creature, sure, it's, it seems like a good thing, right? You want to help somebody in pain, you want to help them through the suffering. And then your reward for that is death. So was it worth doing that? And it's kind of this, this question that I don't think he's necessarily saying one or the other. He's simply presenting this. This is a thing that, encounter, that we encounter in life that through, the, through good actions, we don't always get the good reward, at least what we perceive to be good reward. So it's about the perception of like what we think is good, and what we think is wrong may be short-sighted. And even through this moon shadow, you know, he, he, he's distraught over the death of his mother, but he doesn't communicate any kind of hate toward this creature. Um, Ira just kind of is Ira. He doesn't care or doesn't seem to show that he cares. And really just wants out of there. He doesn't want to be around this. He, he wants to live. He just, all this stuff. And they then both encounter um, or get put in service into a war that really makes no sense. And, but they do their best to be soldiers and kind of finish their mission. Uh, and the person they work or they serve under eventually himself escapes or something happens where he realizes that he, for him, he realizes that he didn't really want to fight. It wasn't really what he ever really wanted to do, but he was just good at it. And so throughout this whole journey, they just encounter and kind of JM, JM uses them to explore this idea of what are, what is conflict, what is death? What is love? And to that extent, that's where the philosophy is. He's, that, he's not, I don't think, making any declarative statement about what anything is. He's simply exploring these ideas, saying, here's for you to decide for yourself through what you're reading here about these individuals' experiences, how they themselves saw the, how they themselves reflected upon these things. Because you do kind of get both Ira's and Mushal's perspectives. And it's for you to decide what you think um, the philosophy is that you should kind of adopt is is love worth it? Is it worth it if it leads to just great suffering? Is is altru is altruism worth it if it leads to your own individuals? You know, like suffering of like maybe monetary or other stuff. Is conflict worth it? Like, yes, you want a war, you want some battle. Then, but then, what did you actually win? And, but also he dresses, but, but he never sets out and says, this is what you should adopt. It's simply, this is what we encounter in life. And these are the perspectives that these characters kind of give you through their interactions. And Moonshadow is perpetually throughout, except for maybe one moment, believes in, in doing, in just doing good. He believes in this optimistic approach of regardless of what happens there, there has to be something good to look forward to and do. And, um, and much like with Ira having a momentary sense of, he expresses in his own way love for Moonshadow and protects him and, and wants to care for him. 
Moonshadow has a momentary action where what he does kind of even appalls him where he ends up shooting, I think, Alinxious. Um, and again, this isn't about a change in their characters, it's about the fact that this is the exploration of life that we sometimes have to confront ourselves and do something that we, upon after doing that, realize this is really who we want to be. That we've tried this one step and we found this is not the step for us. And so there's a lot, so you expose a lot of different philosophies of things. And through this, um, something I just read recently, because I was kind of curious about what is James Davis's philosophy, which I could not find. It turns out this is actually, I think, his first work where he created from superhero stories that he was paid to write. And this is like the first story where he kind of found his own voice that he, through which he wanted to tell stories. Because up to that point, he was saying how he was kind of just a mishmash of voices, you know, of Stan Lee and other creators in trying to tell superhero stories. But he hadn't yet quite found his own voice. And Moonshadow was this first work where he said or he felt that that was where he was able to write a story his way and find his voice in telling a story. So it's kind of, it almost makes sense and very fitting that in doing that, he is touching upon philosophies of, of some of the most fundamental things about human experience to kind of showcase his interest, his desire to um, explore these ideas themselves. And in maybe in some ways, like with Doom Patrol, there are things that are just absolutely incredibly absurd that in some ways are nonsensical, but they serve to kind of present a backdrop, I feel, to in the light of this absurdity, there is something actually very meaningful in what these characters endure or experience. Um, so there's no one particular philosophy, but it's just, it, it, I, it, it, I think it's a philosophical perspective on the things that we experience. Huh. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of uh, Moonshine. I, it's been a long while Moonshine, since I've read it. Moonshine is, uh, oh. is not called a drink. <laughs> Moonshine, I'm sorry. Did you um, just call I, it Moonshine Night? <laughs> no, I called it Moonshine because <laughs> that's what I'm drinking. <laughs> Alex are turning back to his like gangster days, you know? <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> still ready, boys. <laughs> Every episode has like, to have Albert's 1920 Chicago gangster. Hey, it's a signature. Bro, other accent down. <laughs> Want to hear my Victorian night? Yeah, <laughs> she. <laughs> my <friend was> she there. <laughs> um, but uh. Yeah, like, I was gonna add that, I, like, my first impression reading Moonshadow, like, uh, and it's been a while, like, maybe, like, two years, I think? Um, but the main character, Moonshadow, from what I remember, came off as so saccharine as almost to be naive, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but I feel like that's sort of the point, like, listening to you talk about it, it does really make me think that it sort of that Moonshadow's story just mirrors life, basically, right? Like, you you're, you know, yeah. the way that you're birthed into the world, you're, you know, as innocent as can be, but as, as things change around you and as you get older and as you're confronted with different things, um, 
Like, all the things that happened to Moonshadow could... Granted, they, you know, it's happening to him on an alien world, but there are things that happen to people, you know? Uh, people get older, they go off to war, they find out that their parents aren't as... You know, aren't the people that necessarily that they think that they are. Um, you know, things like that. Things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, that, that was an interesting um, observation on Moonshadow. Like... I remember thinking it's it's a super thick comic. It's pretty dense. It's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it was published in 1985 as 12 issues. Then I think in 1996, um, he when they re-released in Under Vertigo the um, a collection, um, he did a new ending for Moonshadow because apparently he was he did like an epilogue ending. He had left off in issue 12. And he had in mind something else, and he got a chance to do that in when it got moved to Vertigo. Because it was, I think it was originally published under Epic. Yeah, it was originally published, uh, like you said, in 1985 uh, by Epic Comics, which was Marvel's creator-owned imprint. I think it was a bi-monthly book, so it took about two years for them to complete the project. And then in the 90s, uh, Vertigo re-released uh, the entire series again, um, and they also published, uh, I think it was a 64-page uh, one-shot, uh, prestige format one-shot that was part comic and also part illustrated prose novella mm. as an ending to mm -hmm. the story. And now, um, I think, well, Vertigo did publish a trade paperback collection. It's out of print now. Currently, uh, Moonshadow is available in a very nice deluxe hardcover comic uh, edition from Dark Horse for thirty bucks, and it's like five hundred pages for hardcover. That's oh, pretty good. Hardcover version? Yeah. Oh, I have the paperback complete version from Vertigo. Yeah, you have the complete Moonshadow. Yeah, now well, there's... complete is spelled with an archaic form of complete. Yeah. Now there's uh, last year Dark Horse. Uh, released an edition called the definitive edition and it's a hardcover that's nice yeah it collects nice everything it collects the whole story it collects the covers from epic run and the vertigo run and it also has a, a bunch of extras like you can read uh his original proposal you can you get to see a bunch of uh artwork and and uh developmental artwork from john j Muth. um you get a little bit of commentary from Mateus himself it's a really well put together package. I wish more comics looked like this. Well, now I have to get that book. Yeah, you have to. Is it still in print? Yeah, yeah it should be. It just came out last year, so um, I would hope that it's still easily available. All right. My yeah, philosophy. In Moonshadow, I think for the most part, you follow Moonshadow when he's 15 through um, 17. A lot of it takes place when he's still in his really, like, I guess mid-teens, if anything. Yeah. Um, it, it does, I think he ends up, I think at some point we get to the point where he is like an, like a young adult. Don't they fast forward to a point where he becomes like an old man, like towards the end? Kind of, yeah. There's kind of this, for, this, this fast forward to the future of like, you know, he gets married, he has kids, he kind of, then he loses all that. Um, so the, the ending is almost strangely like, is itself really bleak 
but it kind of highlights how even despite all that, Moonshadow, even though he grieves, is still in the in essence who he was when he was 15, which is he acknowledges that loss. I think he himself just acknowledges that loss is just a part of life, that this is something that he has to deal with. That doesn't mean that life itself is bleak. It just means that things happen, but you, I guess it's who you, who you are is how you cope and deal with them, how you want to view life to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do. Would you say, Albert? Oh, sorry, I didn't yeah, cut you off. No, go. Oh, I was just gonna say that uh, this is a fun choice for a philosophical comic because it, it's not necessarily a comic that I think uh, deals overtly with, uh, you know, like presenting uh, some kind of philosophy uh, in the sense of um, these are the ideas from a classical philosophical figure or even like a more modern philosoph- philosopher. Uh, but it this is more uh, along the lines of this story kind of illustrates uh, a worldview for life that, um, you know, if more people adopted this kind of perspective, you know, it could it could help a lot. It could, it could, uh, you know, just change your outlook on things. Like you, you were talking about, like the, even though it's, it's a lot of bleak stuff going on, you know, there's this constant underlying sense of, um, hope will prevail. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And optimism. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> having read a lot of JM DeMatteis's work, I do think that, uh, those, fundamental ideas do, uh, they are present in a lot of his other comics. Um, and I, I don't know what his like life philosophy is or whatever, but it, it does feel like this, like you were sharing earlier, Shane, is how this, he said this comic, I think he writes about it in his essay for the introduction, but uh, yeah, he, he talks about how this comic was, like his voice, you know, at the time, it, this was probably the first comic that he did that, that really distilled um, the essence of who he is. You know, if, if I could be so bold as to say that a created work distills the essence of a human being, you know, it's like, this is, <laughs> this is something that I think probably still means a, a good deal to him, um, I would imagine, um, because it, it's just so full of depth and care and, and wonder that you can't help but um, appreciate the ideas in it and, and how, the, how the main character, Moon, um, how he grows and his, his journey through, through this time in life. It, it does, number one, it, I think it, it helps us as older readers to, you know, gives us food for reflecting on our, on our own youth and, and imagining um, how things might have been, um, but it's also something that is timeless because even even if you read it now, um, after all these years that it's been published, there there are qualities in it that um, that will never really become uncool. You know, like there are like the the ideas of the ideas behind the story are the things that. Um, give it a backbone, all the emotional aspects of, of the journey, as well as that uh, fundamental underlying sense of hope and, and optimism. 
as a view uh, for life. Yeah, even here it says it's like, it's kind of at the beginning at the very end, at the end, it's not a story about Moonshadow's life, but about his awakening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can take on many forms because since he starts off as a 15 year old, it could mean the awakening of him to adulthood. But, but also since he's an old man reflecting upon this part of his life, it, it calls me the, the awakening of, of who he really is and who he wants to be. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, yeah, there's no, there's no single philosophical idea. It's trying to explore. It's just the philosophy of things that we encounter lives, the things that we ourselves would ruminate upon to like, you know, the yeah. questions we ask. Yeah, I feel I feel like when you put it that way, this is in terms of philosophy. Looking at this comic in terms of its philosophy, this is something that is, uh, you know, way more likely for a normal person like us to digest and consume than yeah, uh, you yeah. know, a philosophical treatise. Yeah, I'd say that it's, it's a philosophical. I would say it's a philosophical philosophical, <laughs> philosophical <laughs> contemplation of life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you gotta love J.M. DiMatteis' stuff, man. We, yeah, we talk I agree. Like, a lot of his work I've read does probe and explore philosophies of some sort. Like, uh, we're talking before this about how he wrote Batman Absolution. I would say that book would be considered as what is his philosophy about justice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never read that one, but that, I should I should uh, keep an eye out for it. I was also going to bring up a uh, Doctor Fate. Oh. I think would probably be. A book that in some oh yeah that that's another one philosophy. yeah I, I was actually going to bring up uh craven's last hunt because we ah, talked yeah. about that on our podcast back in like episode three because that was yeah. on one of the uh that was one top of the 25. ones on the marvel top 25 which for our longtime listeners we will complete those final two at some point <laughs> thank you for your patience but uh i guess i think it's just circumstances right now where um, because of the, the quarantine and Shanus is out of school, uh, his, he's, or I guess because of summer, he's, he's not uh, doing his, he's got time off from his graduate studies and then a little bit of time off, a little bit of time off and, and Zach isn't working as much on Saturdays. So we, we've got more time to do the series of recommendations that we've always talked about doing. And there are enough to last another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. But yeah, no complaints. I mean, it's it's good to be able to just uh, all sit here and converse like this because, you know, without the circumstances, as you put it, Drew, uh, normally this probably wouldn't happen. So, yeah. Yeah, we got to make great. the best of the situation. Plus it's and it's a long list of recommendations that we have. So, <laughs> and we're constantly adding to it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we have a spreadsheet that has all the... You know, it's got all the major genres that you'd expect. Like major, talked about I, I mean, crime, I think science. major's gotten to um, a world of also just incredibly specific too. Yeah, that, that's what I was about to to get at. I was I was gonna say we we have all the major genres that you would find in in a bookstore or a library, like science fiction, <clears throat> crime, uh, nonfiction, history, what have you, philosophy. You know, that's something you would find at a library, but um. You know, we also there created a bunch of our own categories. Categories too. in the spreadsheet, Drew. What's that? There are 107 categories or genres. Yeah, we, we keep adding all these subcategories and stuff. You know, like 
so there's there's stuff like steampunk and and uh sports and um heck we have categories for all sorts of things because all these categories are just excuses for us to get together and talk about comics that we love and appreciate and just share that joy i'm just i'm just pointing out that of those 170 categories many of which have bloomed in the past month i think we've maybe talked about seven of them maybe eight some something definitely less than ten on the yeah. order of i can on the order of fingers that i can count on both my hands <laughs> that well, is accurate if we continue to meet and uh produce like uh, we're just just gonna get through them man so yeah well all the school's starting up in a few weeks for me that's gonna be a lot harder to do It's all right. We can pack in like 50 next week. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to say that at the very minimum, even though I don't always read everything that I talk about, because a lot of times it's, it's a book I've read before, it, at least it does give a reason to go and read more of my, of my library, my comic books, e even other books I have sitting on my shelves that I work through very slowly, because um, I do need that, that break from just math and physics and be like, I need to think about something else. Yeah, for sure, man. So before we uh, wrap things up here, do you guys have any final honorable mentions that you want to briefly give a shout out to? Um. Well, I, I gave up my shout out for absolute for uh, absolution, but that's just another Jim Dematis work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, um. that's another one I got to check out. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a couple quick shouts out myself. Um, there's another story in uh, the Matrix book that I have. I'm trying to find the exact title of it. Um, Do you remember the creators? Yeah, it's it's actually the first story in the book. The, um, the artist is Jeff Darrow. And actually, I think the story is by uh, Larry and Andy Wachowski. Oh, okay. uh, that, those are the third names anymore. Please use the real names now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Larry and Andy Wachowski, when they were Larry and Andy Wachowski. That's what's written <laughs> in the book, so that's what I'm going with at the moment. Um, but yeah, so the, the first story is just a black and white one, but it's got all this like ridiculously detailed, awesome Jeff Darrow artwork, uh, and it's, it's one of those classic uh, Matrix stories about um, a robot who, I guess... Uh, either attains or has consciousness and they are uh it's that whole thing of questioning um at what point is is artificial intelligence on par with quote-unquote human intelligence and how do we differentiate between the two mm -hmm. um so I, there, there are some kind of gruesome things that happen in the story like there's there's a murder that takes place and stuff so uh definitely be forewarned that uh, if you're sensitive to that type of material, maybe maybe don't read it. Um, but conceptually speaking, it was that's another one of the stories in here that's that's probably among my favorites. Uh, it stood out to me. Um, and then another shout out to uh, a Batman story that I was originally going to do, but I kind of favorite the Matrix on this one because I felt it was better representative of what we were going through for the podcast. Uh, the Batman story is called uh, Death Blow and Then You Live. Um, I don't remember the plot well enough to give a really good synopsis of it right now. Uh, the last time I read it was 
uh, probably a couple years ago, but I do remember that there are a lot of uh, concepts in there, philosophically speaking, that that will make you think, it will make you wrestle with a lot of kind of the same topics that we've discussed here today. So uh, yeah, those are, those are both pretty good and a couple of shout outs and maybe check those out too, if you get a chance. Mm -hmm. My other uh, honor, my, my honorable recommendation is Promethea uh, by Alan Moore, J.H. Williams, the third, Mick Gray, Todd Klein. Uh, so Promethea was a, a comic from the very late 90s, early 2000s, um, published by America's Best Comics, which was an imprint of Wildstorm, which was an imprint of DC Comics. <laughs> but um, yeah, Promethea, so it's definitely uh, one of Alan Moore's uh, more major works from the past 20 years, I would say. Um, it, it starts off as kind of almost kind of like a Wonder Woman pastiche uh, with a female superhero having these, uh, you know, goddess-like powers. But it, for a th during its 32-issue run, I'd say at least uh, at least half of those issues were straight up didactic works about. Uh, they were just it was just using the characters as mouthpieces to explain. Alan Moore's philosophical views on on uh, his life, his his religious beliefs, and his life, and things like uh, I I guess materialism and and uh, mysticism and and the Kabbalah and and all these other uh, concepts that I guess they're just things that from what I from what I understand they're they're things that he lives by, um, and it's a very didactic work which I think probably cost a lot of their audience, but um, I still read it all and I still have it all. Um, I don't, I haven't reread it since I first read it, but it's something that I do enjoy just flipping through because the artwork is so incredible. And it, it's, it's an interesting book to read because it's, again, it's, it's so different from just about anything else that you'll find. And I, one of the things that I do appreciate about it is, is that it exposes me to different ideas, you know, like I don't, I definitely don't subscribe um, to his beliefs, but it's interesting to see what he thinks of the world. Um, and I think it's worth giving a, uh, a read if, if you ever want to check it out, like definitely the first trade or maybe even the first two trades are very straightforward uh, superheroics. And then after that, um, you just got to stick with it and, and experience uh something completely different from almost any other comic sweet did you have anything albert uh the one thing that i guess jumps out at me uh looking at my bookshelf right now is um and you know well he's a favorite of ours but i'm, I'm gonna go back to jam dm and mm -hmm. i was gonna say brooklyn dreams is uh, you know if you if you end up reading Moonshadow and it's like Drew and uh, Shane is for saying um, it, it's not like he adheres to a specific school of thought uh, in terms of the philosophy that he's discussing in his books, but if you read enough of his works, you'll you'll definitely see a thread of uh, ideas that 
show up over and over again. And and you know that's that's a good thing. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's just stuff that he likes exploring and uh, studying. So uh, I would re- recommend Brooklyn Dreams just as um, something that you could read along with Moonshadow just to get a better idea of him as an author and just the various ideas that he's espousing. Yeah, I would definitely second that recommendation. That's another great piece of work from one of our favorite comic book writers. All right, guys, this was, as usual, this was a fun episode to, to do. Uh, you always surprise me with uh, how much uh, we have to say about um, relatively short comics because the comic I picked was only like 24 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the outlier. Mine was in the order of 400 something pages. Yeah. <laughs> That was fun, guys. Um, I forget what our next topic is, but uh, I guess we need to surprise our listeners anyway. So Yeah, let's just keep it as a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my personal philosophy on our way out is buy comics. <laughs> yeah. Comics good. Comics good. Read more comics. Read more comics. Eat toenail pizza. <laughs> well, don't eat toenail pizza. Don't eat toenail pizza. <laughs> Unless you order it from Albert because he needs it so he can, he needs your support so he can buy more moonshine. <laughs> <laughs>